0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Indefense of Plants Podcast, the official podcast of InDefensivePlants.com. What's up? This is your host Matt. How's everyone doing this week? We are closing in on yet another in Defense of Plants video. So if you want to be as up to date as possible with our little video series we got going on, please head on over to youtube.com slash and hit subscribe so that every time we place a video up on the internet, you can go and see it. It's a fun series, I've teamed up with local filmmaker, producer, director, Grant Zadzak, and uh, we're using some music from local Chicago artists, Lazy Legs. It's a lot of fun, and I hope to think that you learn a little bit along the way. So what's new? I can't grow begonias. I shouldn't say all begonias, but most of them just end up shriveling and die on me. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. I can keep what I call a beefsteak begonia going, and I've got a begonia growing in our dark frog's vivarium that seems to be doing pretty well, but every other begonia seems to just dampen off and wilt and then eventually die. It's like I can't water them enough, and then when I do water them, they end up rotting and dying. I just don't know what to do. Can anyone give me some advice on how to successfully grow begonias? I absolutely love these plants and would love to have more of them around, gracing me with their beautiful foliage and their quaint but yet pretty flowers. Any begonia growers out there, tell me what to do. What kind of substrate should I grow them in? How should I treat them? Also, another issue I have is every time winter comes through, I get downy mildew or powdery mildew. Powdery mildew? Yeah, on the leaves of most of like the non-succulent type begonias. And uh, I think that's probably just an issue that I'm going to face in any sort of temperate climate where winter is cold and dreary and not a lot of sun. But it's very frustrating because, again, I adore these plants. So help me out here. Alright, what do I have for you this week? Uh, This topic is a bit of a downer, but I like to think that there is a a kernel of hope in there. And it's a a story that I think is really important to tell. And it's really great because you can kind of understand how uh, the community can rise up together and fight for a good cause to help save species and ecosystems around the globe. It's a really good case study, albeit one that you never hope happens uh, in your neck of the woods. Today we're talking about rapid ohia death. Now this is an issue facing the Hawaiian Islands, and it involves one of the most abundant, or the most abundant tree, on the Hawaiian archipelago, Metrosideros polymorpha, the ohia, as it's known, with its beautiful red flowers and kind of polymorphic growth phase, as the specific epithet suggests. Um, it's I think something like upwards of ninety percent of the forests on these Hawaiian islands, and relatives of it are spread throughout the Pacific, but in Hawaii specifically, uh, it's being hit by a fungal disease, a couple fungal diseases that are wiping it out, and it's it's very scary. So to talk about this is my guest today, Dr. James Friday. He's a tropical forestry specialist. He is on the front line of understanding this disease and what it's going to do to the forests of Hawaii. Again, it's a little bit of a downer topic, but there is a thread of hope throughout all of this, and it's really encouraging to know that there's so many people, so many different stakeholders getting behind this issue and trying to understand and prevent further spread of this fungal pathogen. Before we get to that, however, I've got a few orders of business to take care of. First and foremost, if you're enjoying this podcast and you'd like to support it, please head on over to patreon.com slash indefensiveplants and see what we got going on over there. For a little bit of money each month, you can get yourself kickbacks like access to the VIP section of the indefensiveplants.com website. And for those of you looking to give a little bit more, you can get yourself a producer credit on this show. For instance, today's episode is produced in part by Alan, Shane, Amy, Caitlin, Rosanna, Mary Jane, Manuel, Jennifer, Sarah, Christopher, Sienna and Garth, Troy, Margie, Laura, and Mark. So thank you to everyone who has given thus far. It really does mean the world to me. Every little bit helps. Keeping this podcast going does get expensive from month to month, and every little bit goes directly towards making sure that you get a fun and free podcast each and every week. I really enjoy putting these out, and I couldn't be doing it without your support. If money isn't your thing, which I completely understand, you can head on over to whatever podcatcher you use to download this, and at the very least hit subscribe and give this podcast a review. Reviews not only help me make this podcast better for you, the listener, but it also helps InDefense of Plants reach a wider audience, and I'd like to think InDefense of Plants is doing its part to cure plant blindness across the globe. So every episode that gets out for free is another chance we have to curing a little bit of plant blindness around the world, and you have yourself to thank in part for doing so. Also, I am looking to do another question show. So if you've got an aching botanical question, ecological question, just sitting in the back of your head, and Google searches really aren't doing it for you, send me an email, plants at gmail.com, and for a lucky few, I will feature your questions as best as I can with as honest answers as I can on one of these question show episodes. I don't know when it's coming out, but for the next couple of weeks, send me your questions. All right, I think that's enough rambling for me thus far. Let's head on over to my conversation with Dr. Friday. Brace yourselves, everyone, but at the end of the day, try to be as inspired to do a little bit in your own neck of the woods. Hope you enjoy.
1: How are you? Oh, uh, all right. Uh, aside from having to chase dying trees around all the time, which I'd rather do something more uh, constructive, but actually, I was out measuring healthy growing trees yesterday, so that was good.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's. Uh, it's got to be kind of sobering, and knowing that. Hey, you got it. Someone's got to be on the front line of this, yeah. but also to have to know that it's uh, often a losing battle. I'm sure.
1: Um. You know, it was interesting. So we gave a lot of talk. We have an annual conservation conference here in Hawaii and more than a thousand people from everything conservation come. I mean, there are people doing whales and birds and rare plants and all that. Um, So I organized eight talks on different subjects on the rapid Ohia death for that. And several of us really tried to finish up talks with, you know, reasons to be optimistic or at least, you know, moving forward that I think we've seen a really bad outbreak and I think it's going to taper out to something manageable. I mean, not good, but, uh, something that, you know, one more thing we're going to live with and and go ahead with it. You know, I mean, rather than no, it's gone dead. We all, we all go home.
0: Yeah. I mean, here on the mainland, we're seeing, uh, probably a worse story play out with the emerald ash borer so at least you kind of have this idea of like maybe boom and bust
1: yeah yeah well i mean the bad story from the i and i went to forestry school in connecticut and new hampshire you know and so i uh, is the chestnut blight i mean i actually right kicked off my talk with the chestnut blight you know so i don't know if the emerald ash borer is going to do the ash what the chestnut blight did i don't think it's going to be chestnut blight for ohia i think it's going to be a um a pretty severe. We're going to lose a lot of forest on the, you know, tens of thousands of acres of forest, uh, but it's I, it's not going to wipe out the species, I don't think.
0: Well, that's all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know if you've listened in the past, but I usually like to start off with a nice introduction to who you are and what it is you do, you know, sort of a background on what brought you to where you are today. So, uh, Dr. Friday, how about we start with uh, telling us a little bit about you?
1: Sure. Um, well i've been in hawaii let me think now i've been in hawaii for 27 years um but as i mentioned i I studied forestry in new hampshire and um, i spent um, part of my undergraduate in costa rica and i really got enthusiastic about tropical forestry and at the same time we'd see these beautiful forests and you'd hike out to the edge and it was all slashed down for banana plantations so you know, watching these tropical forests and this was 30 years ago watching these tropical forests get destroyed. And then we visited a place called Cati in Costa Rica where they were looking at agroforestry ways to do sustainable forest-based farming in the tropics. I really got interested in that. Um, I wanted to study tropical forestry after that. Uh, Yale was one of the few programs offering tropical forestry. Um, So I I went and I studied tropical forestry there. Uh, After that, I did Peace Corps service in Philippines. I spent four years in the Philippines doing um, agroforestry tree planting village level work um and after that i uh, my wife actually got a job in hawaii with the u.s Forest service okay. in the pacific islands so i followed her here i did a doctorate here at the university of hawaii studying agroforestry um and what i've moved into is extension forestry now so i um found a job here on the big island doing extension um, with their, with our university, which is a land grant college. So um, I am the forester on the, on the staff. We have, you know, most of our extension agents are uh, horticulture or livestock or traditional things, but we've moved into forestry. So I cover extension for forestry, for everything forestry. Um, but with this issue, I'd say three quarters of my work is on forest health issues now. Um, and we wow. moved over here to the Big Island in 1990, because in Hawaii, most of the forests are on the Big Island. And um, I've been, I have been, I do work statewide and also Pacific-wide. I have some other projects in the American-affiliated Pacific and Guam and Micronesia and places like that. Um, but really, coming back to this, um, the way I see my job is responding to what people who take care of the forests need to know. And what can science and the university bring them to what they need to know? And with this rapid ohia death, it it came to us from landowners saying, hey, my trees are dying. Um, What's killing them? And um, so that's what really kicked off and kicked off my involvement Mm -hmm. of
0: it. Now, I'm glad you brought that up, this involvement of the landowners bringing the idea to you, because I've always kind of gone around and thought that, you know, people like horticulturists or gardeners in general are spending a lot more time, uh, a lot more intimate time with plants And can maybe understand a little bit more about what, uh, A, what kind of diseases are affecting them, where they might be starting, and B, how these plants might behave over time. Uh, You know, is that integral to something like the position that you have?
1: Well, yeah, it really is. And with this disease in particular, um, it was brought to us by people who, so let me back up a little bit, Um, especially in the Puna district of the Big Island here, um, people live in and, and among the forest, the district is broken up into uh, many tens of thousands of lots of anywhere from, you know, two acres to 40 acres cut out in the forest. So people have a house in the middle of a forest hmm. and people have lived there for 20 years and observed that forest very closely. And so when people started calling us there, look, I've been here 20 years. These trees are dying it, in a way, in a rate that they've never done it before. And there's always a background level of their trees die. I mean, there are all kinds of reasons the trees die. Um, so there's always been a background level, but people who observe the forest, um, you know, day after day, year after year, you know, lived right there could see it from their kitchen window. We're telling us, no, something new is going on um, and things are dying really rapidly. So that's what the, the landowner and the observation brings to it. And then the complement to that is the the lab science where, you, you know, you see a tree die, but it's really a pretty complicated issue what killed that. Mm-hmm. You can always find a lot of pathogens on a tree, but which one killed the tree and which one was just always there in the background? And at first, we were just recovering fungi that are always there in the background, but shouldn't be killing the tree. So we were casting about for what was killing a tree until, um, you know, the professional pathologist in the lab diagnosed a new fungus. Wow. So it really was the observations by the people on the land on the land, um, coupled with the scientist who has the lab skills to diagnose a new disease.
0: Mm this beautiful collaboration between science and, and the community, really.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So now let's back up a little bit. You know, you've, you've mentioned it a couple of times. What, what, what is an ohia? When you say ohia, um, you know, I don't yes. think that's something people on the mainland really are familiar with.
1: Sure, sure. So our islands are, um, before people, they were largely forested. Mm. Uh, and Hawaii is one of, if not the most remote landmasses in the world. So we actually had... Very few plant species um, blow here or drift here on the ocean and are carried by birds to start out, and then we had a lot of speciation. So a lot of species have evolved to be unique to Hawaii. But our forest is unusual for tropical forests in that it's not really very diverse. Most of the forest, I'd say about eighty percent, is dominated by one species of tree, which is ohia, uh, Metrosideros polymorpha. It's in the myrtaceae, the myrtle family. Um, it's, there are different species across the Pacific, um, and in Hawaii, one species really dominates a lot of the forest. Um, especially on this island, we have a lot of new landscapes. This island, Hawaii Island, is built by five volcanoes. Mm-hmm. Um, the newest one is pouring out lava today. Um, and uh, most of the forests are dominated just by this one species of tree. They, they tend to be diverse in the understory. A lot of rare native wildflowers and ferns and everything else like that but the canopy of the forest is really very heavily dominated so uh, you know for northeastern comparison it, it wouldn't be like a diverse hardwood forest in the central hardwood so it would be the diversity more of a a main boreal forest where you know if you lose the spruce you know you've kind of lost <laughs> that forest, you know for a spruce so it's that kind of structure of a forest ohia itself is a is a remarkable tree um it's the first tree that colonizes lava flows. So you can go on lava flows that are only a few decades old, and young ohia trees are sprouting up in the cracks. In older forests, it can be a giant. The biggest one I know, I'm six foot three. The biggest one I know, the diameter is more than my height <laughs> and I'm 100 feet tall. Um, and if you go to swamps in the montane areas or bogs, I should say, in montane areas, there are mature trees that are, you know, waist height, you know, little dwarf things in bogs. It can live for hundreds of years. One of my colleagues here has um, dated by growth analysis and carbon dating trees over 600 years old here. So these huge giants are hundreds of years old. Um, but then we see we can date a lot of the stands just by when the last time the lava came through. So we know how old the stands were. It lives all the way down to the coast. Um, you can stand in some ohia stands and throw rocks in the ocean all the way up to about 8,000 feet where it gets too dry and cold for it. So a huge range from rainforests and on our island, we have forests that get 300 inches of rain a year um, all the way down to pretty dry forests.
0: Wow. So the picture you're painting here is that, A, this is a very important tree to the ecology and probably the culture of the Hawaiian archipelago, but also in terms of... uh, its ability to cope with a variety of types, it's a, it's, it's hardy. It's, it's a species that can handle a lot.
1: It's a very hardy tree. Um, again, it lives in these pretty dry areas. It, uh, lives for a very long time. Um, the, the, um, the thing that is again, worrisome, and this is with, uh, invasive species globally, um, especially plant diseases, if it's a pathogen, the tree hasn't evolved with it can be really devastating to it. So it, it I mean, with its native complement of pests and diseases, is co-evolved with it. It tolerates that. When you get in a pathogen that it hasn't evolved with, um, then it can be very susceptible. It does seem that it's very susceptible to um, this new pathogen that we're seeing.
0: So that's the picture of really what what it, what you mean when you say rapid ohia death is that something has come in this pathogen that you speak of and it's wiping them out. So uh, at this point in time, do you guys know what it is, or is it something that has just happened recently? You know, what's kind of the history of this this pathogen on, on the Hawaiian island?
1: Well, we we do know what it is, and it's happened recently. Um, so when we finally got a, you know, the lab pathologist coupled with the, the, the landowners and the people on the ground to do some um, actual felling of trees and cutting them up and looking for signs of the fungus through the tree and then plating that out in the lab. Just like when you're sick and the doctor will take a swab of your throat to see what it is. Um, what it turned out consistently over dozens and dozens of trees that we cut up and harvested was a, a fungus called Ceratocystis. So this turns out to be a global, the fungi in this genus turn out to be global pathogens all around the world. Um, But what they are is they're different species. Every time they find them infecting a different plant, and there are Ceratocystis on eucalyptus, on mango, on coffee, on cacao, all kinds of important plants. It's a different species, this fungus, that's affecting them. What is curious, and still we haven't figured out, is... um, Where these ones came from, because it turns out that we have two species here infecting Ohia trees, again, only newly discovered in 2014, so we're only in our third year of having discovered what these two species are, and they're unique globally. The the scientists who do the DNA work have extracted the DNA, matched them up with global DNA databases of Ceratocystis, and there's no exact match. Wow. Uh, So there are two new species. If there were a match, we might know how they got here, uh, but we don't, um, because if if we knew, if they matched, for example, it on coffee, we would suspect they came in on coffee plants, but they don't. So they don't match anything exact. One seems to be related to others in Latin America. One seems to be related to others in Asia. Um, how long they've been here, well, we, we don't know. I mean, we first, the oldest stands of trees that later we diagnosed this disease, We started seeing mortality in 2010. Hmm. So there's enough disease to start drawing people's attention in 2010. So it was humming along, you know, at low levels that nobody noticed for years before that. But, you know, I don't think they, I don't think it's been more than 20 years, but that's just my guess at how long it took to ramp up to by 2010, uh, people started noticing it. So it, there was a lot of Ohia disease work in the seventies and eighties. They never found this fungus with it all. So, sometime in the 90s or early 2000s.
0: Wow. And that's a really good point to make with this invasive species, is you often hear people say, oh, well, it, it doesn't seem to act you know, invasive in my yard, but oftentimes it takes you know, more than a decade for these species to ramp up to a level in which they become an issue.
1: Right. There's a huge lag time. The, part of the, the difficulty in dealing with invasive species is the, the cost-efficient thing to do is get them before they become a problem. But you you never get funding to deal with something until it's a problem. And then once it's a problem, it's really expensive to try to deal with it. Um, In fact, the most cost-effective thing is to stop it from coming in. And then the second is to nip it in the bud when it just starts coming. So in the big picture invasive species, one of the things we're trying to do is uh, figure out who the bad actors are. And if they show up, quick jump on them and get rid of them before they start causing huge problems. Because once they've spread enough that they're causing big problems you're never going to get rid of them by that.
0: Yeah, it's sadly kind of a parallel with our, our health system in a way in which you're treating symptoms rather than the cause when in reality it's the pre- preventative medicine that really needs to be in, implemented. Well, well,
1: sure. You don't you know, you don't go to the, the the doctor till you're you're feeling bad, but you know, you should prevent whatever's doing. It's pretty similar. And and that's I think that's why you know, recently we've very much used that idea of forest health you know, rather than focusing on this bug or this fungus or this weed, it's like, hey, the whole forest is an ecosystem. We try to remain it being healthy and often you see, um, you know, one thing aggravating the effect of the other. For this, though, this is really you get in a new pathogen that a population has no resistance to and it can be devastating.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's that's happened time and time again, and it's tragic when it does. You know, what what's the mechanism by which this fungus starts to kill the tree? Is it something that kills the growing points, or is it girdling it? What does it do once it's in the tree itself?
1: So, good question. They're actually, and this is research that's just been done this year, so this is stuff that they're doing in the lab across the way from me and looking at how the fungus grows through the tree. So um, none of this has been published, but um, just starting this year, We And by we, I mean the the larger team, which is there are a couple dozen people working on this now. um, And I'm not the pathologist working on it. But we inoculated some trees with both species uh, of the fungus now because we can culture the fungus and inoculate trees to see how it would spread and how it actually affects the tree. So one species, the one we call species A, is a vascular wilt pathogen. So what that does is it... um, the fungus distributes through the xylem of the tree. So from the inoculation point, in a month it went 30 feet up, it went all the way up in the tree. Wow. It um, spread throughout the xylem of the tree. And at some point, the tree is trying to block the fungus in the xylem, but it manages to block off all the all the water. So there's, the, the crown gets no more water, the whole tree crown turns brown. That's actually where that name, rapid Odea death came from because people are telling us, hey, we saw this tree, it was nice and green two weeks ago and it turned brown like in two weeks. Um, So, basically, the species A blocks the vascular tissue. um, It travels up and down the tree quickly. Species B um, didn't. Species B just causes um, necrosis right around where it was inoculated. But if you have a couple inoculation points, that will girdle the tree. So, um, the pathologists are working towards declaring that A is a vascular wilt disease, which means the fungus goes through the xylem and stops water. Um, from getting to the tree, and the crown doesn't get any water and dies. And species B is a canker disease, which means it forms sort of a localized mortality, which um, eventually can girdle the tree and then kill the tree from that. But it doesn't move up and down the tree
0: very much. Wow, double whammy. That is, It's bizarre to me that when you, you know, you mentioned earlier that this fungus, or at least the genus in which it comes from, is very specific to certain plants from different families. But now you have two Totally unknown fungi that you've never seen before, no idea of the origin, and both are affecting the ohia. That is bizarre, and we don't have an answer for that.
1: I mean, they didn't arrive simultaneously. You know, one was here humming along, and then the other came in, but they were both in that kind of, I believe, uh, ramping up phase, which, you know, as you say, can take years of being there slowly ramping up until they kind of burst on the scene. And partly it's, you know, for you don't know what you've got until you start looking for it and you know with a new fungal disease it's not something people walk down the trail and notice like a new weed you know i mean it's a it's a disease so until you cut the tree down and you cut it up and you take samples in the lab you don't find it and it was only when we started looking for it that we found hey there's there's two of these
0: diseases that's bizarre now obviously you're in an archipelago uh this tree is is spread throughout the archipelago is it everywhere now or is it isolated at this point to one or maybe a couple islands
1: so far it's isolated to the Big Island um, although the Big Island is bigger than all the other islands combined so it's not much comfort and it's not on the northern peninsula of the Big Island so it's not in the Kohala district yet Um, in fact there's uh, to get to the northern peninsula of the island you sort of pass over these grasslands so there's no contiguous forest, so I don't know we're still hoping it might not be reached there we're hoping it won't go to the other islands the so we're hoping it won't go to the other islands and it's been nowhere else where Metrosideros, the Oea tree is in the pacific so there are roughly two dozen species in the pacific all the way from here to new zealand um and so the disease hasn't gone to any other islands one of the things that we're trying to do um, is stop people from moving around plant material that is one way the disease would move around if someone moved infected wood like someone moved logs or infected wood or infected plants so within hawaii now It is, um, there's a quarantine on the island. You can't move Ohia products off the island, so it doesn't get to the other islands. Um, And I'm hoping the other Pacific Island countries have got some pretty good biosecurity measures. Um, Several of us have gone to New Zealand, given talks in New Zealand about, you know, watch out for this. Because these things tend to get passed around island to island. So we want the other islands with metro sitters to be aware of it.
0: Yeah. Now, I mean, it's a fungus, so I'm assuming the main uh, vector for which it, you know, gets from one tree to another is some sort of spore, or uh, is there an animal vector, you know, other than the obvious human component to this this invasive species issue.
1: Yeah, um, so it actually, Ceratocystis is a very uh, good, efficient pathogen. Um, it has several spore types of, and ways of getting around. Basically you can think of them as their hard-shelled spores and sticky spores. Sticky spores are moved on cutting tools. So there are serratis diseases of coffee, for example, and they're called a mal de machete because they are um, transmitted by pruning. You prune one with a machete and it gets on your machete and you move down the row, you get the next plant and the next plant, it moves down that way. Um, So that kind of motion is something, you know, people moving and pruning things. We've had a whole outreach program on sterilizing and cleaning your tools if you ever prune an ohia tree before you move to the next one. The other thing is that the fungus does form these hard-shelled spores, and these can live for years. We found these live, viable in trees that have died at least four years ago. So these things are, for example, if you cut a dead tree and you took the wood somewhere else and cut it up and blew that dust from cutting up the log into your forest, you can move the, the pathogen that way. There's no windblown spores. A few years ago, we had a rust fungus here, another new invasive species that had windblown spores. So there was no quarantine because as soon as that was on one island, it was on all the islands. The spores just blew in the wind. This isn't moving that much. Um, One of the ways we do think it does though, is when these are infected stands get hit after the fungus takes out the trees, the pouring beetles get into the trees and they drill holes and they produce a lot of sawdust that sawdust blows in the wind and we think that is one of the ways that um other trees will get infected
0: so it's kind of one of these invasion meltdown scenarios where it just kind of it it really is
1: because the beetles that are attacking them are mostly non-native beetles too so you know it's it's facilitating the beetle seems to be facilitating the fungus whether the beetle actually moves the fungus onto healthy trees we don't know yet um So you you see the correlation between beetle attack and fungal, but which came first is something we're still trying to work on. We have entomologists working on, you know, trapping at it and looking to see if the beetle will move the fungus into a healthy tree or if the beetle, which I think is what's happening, is the beetle is just attacking trees that are already infected, but then causing sawdust that spreads the fungus further.
0: Wow. Scary. Um, So what are you seeing now? I mean, since this uh, infection has really been detected, obviously it results in the death of the tree. Uh, and it's a dominant tree. So, you know, are you seeing large swaths of forests in infected areas just dropping out? You know, what happens after I- infection hits?
1: Yeah, so the, the this has been one of, this is one of the areas of, of research that we still are not really, uh, we're still learning. And one of my colleagues, Flint Hughes of the Forest Service, he's got field plots out about 50 plots now in areas that he tried to put him in right as it was starting to get data. So the disease progresses differently in different spots. There's some areas where it's killed 98, 99% of the trees. So you just go in there, and that those in the ohia in some of these areas is 99% of the forest. So there would be two or three trees left in several acres of forest. Um, it just kills everything. There are other spots where we see a dead tree or two, or maybe we see a number of dead trees, but most trees aren't affected. So the disease plays out differently in different areas of forests. Um, there are some clues that this might have to do partly with temperature. Uh, cooler forest, it seems to cause less disease. Um, you would think in drier forest it would cause less disease, but we don't see the data for that yet. The warm, wet forests are the ones that got hit worst. Um, so in the forest, it's causing different levels of diseases where it's hit. Um, and partly though, because it seems to have started on the, the eastern corner of the island and spread west, we're not sure if it's just a matter of time until everything gets worse or if some of these forests just aren't going to have as much disease as some others. So that, that goes into monitoring. One of the other things is this is known worldwide as a um, wound pathogen. So the tree needs some kind of wound for the fungus to get into. Now in plantation systems like plantation eucalyptus or coffee, it's pruning. The, the fungus gets into pruning wounds. What we had here in East Hawaii is we had a hurricane hit in 2014 that broke branches on most trees, I would say. Um, And so that may be why the corner of the island where the hurricane hit is also where we see the worst disease. I mean, we saw it. We saw, you know, hundreds of acres being affected by 2013. So that was before the hurricane in 2014. But subsequent, we saw a lot of disease with that. So the interplay between damage to trees and... um, The disease incidence is uh, probably important. It's hard to pin down exactly what that is, Mm
0: -hmm. though. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good, like, kind of PSA moment for uh, stop carving your names or wounding or just hitting trees. I mean, that's their front line is their bark against any sort of defense, and now you just open them up. So
1: So one of the things we do see a lot is um, if someone, you know, plows a new driveway or builds a fence and they wound a bunch of trees, those trees get infected. So as part of our outreach program, that's one of our messages, is don't wound OEA trees. In fact, in a lot of areas, I I tell people look, if you've got it really injured tree, it's better just to cut it down uh, rather than let it get infected and then maybe spread the disease to other trees in the area.
0: Yeah. And that's another really good point. I I know a lot of cases where people have gone up in arms with, uh, you know, preventative culling of stands of trees and just, oh, you're cutting them down. What are you doing? But in reality, it's actually better for the bigger picture and the long-term survival of these species to take out infected individuals because that's the source. Right. Right. Yeah. So it sounds to me like, uh, you know, you're your team is doing what you guys can, you're catching up, you're trying to do as much research as possible to better understand what's going on there. But, uh, you, you know, you mentioned outreach as being a big component. You know, what's what's being put into place and what are you guys doing to kind of help, not necessarily stop the spread, but at least uh, lessen the blow?
1: Well, we're also trying to stop the spread. So one of the things um, that we're doing is, um, in forests that are kind of on the leading edge, um, felling trees that are infected. So trying to stop that chain of the beetles, chewing them into the creating a lot of sawdust and blowing into uninfected areas. So there've been a number of areas where kind of at the leading edge, the state forestry agency has gone in and felled trees to try to knock down, to stop that from moving from infected trees into uninfected forest. In forests that are already badly infected, of course, that's that's not helping very much, but both um, the state forests and Hawaii Volcanoes National Park they're really trying to fell infected trees to help stop that spreading by the beetles um, and the sawdust or the frass created by the beetles. So that's the trying to stop it spreading. The other thing is the State Department of Agriculture with a quarantine, stopping moving around planted infected plant material. Um, they put that in right away as soon as we you know, really understood the problem in 2015. And you, know, you, you can't prove a negative, but there has not been any Um, Of this disease on any of the other islands since so at least nothing got through and caused disease so that's good. What we do for outreach is um, we're teaching people to um, not wound ohia. I mean, really, you know, if you can move the fence around or something else like that and, and not wound it. Some of this, there's a lot of work to be done because people like uh, power line companies, that have to go brush power lines. I mean, it's one thing to tell a homeowner to be careful pruning something, but another power line company, we're really trying to work on how they can keep the power lines free, keep the electricity on without chewing up too many trees. Um, Cleaning tools, if you cut ohia, uh, and then uh, cleaning your vehicles, one of the things is with the beetles chewing in, creating all the sawdust that lands on the ground. Well, if you go off-roading, which a lot of this island, they're just dirt roads. and You drive around, you pick up a lot of soil, that can contain the fungal spores. So I myself, when I come back from the field, if I'm off pavement, I pressure wash under my truck so I don't spread that into other areas. Um, And then not moving around. Ohia plants, ohia wood, you know, don't don't give your friend a bunch of firewood that you cut from your infected trees if he lives on a different part of the island. So don't move it around. So those are are, our messages that we've... um, been getting out there through um, a lot of a lot of I think the most constructive thing we've done is go to community meetings and there are dozens of these small communities in the various forested areas and really just explaining what's going on has been hugely helpful because people see trees dying and they don't know what's going on I mean people have all kinds of ideas some of them pretty wild and it's like no it's not herbicide bombs or something like that it, the, the 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 truth is bad enough. It's a new disease, but there's some things you can do to, you know, protect your trees, not injuring them. Yeah. So many, many community meetings, many um, tables at environmental or conservation events. We have a lot of fairs and conservation events here. And then working out to, you know, radio PSAs. And um, two weeks, we're starting a, a video that's actually going to be a feature length video, you know, featuring the tree. Um, we're having a festival featuring the tree. You know, people value what they know. On this island in Hawaii, people are very connected with the Ohia because here we we see it every day. Um, On the other islands, not so much. Hawaii actually tends to be an urban state with most of the population is in Honolulu. And it's very easy to live your whole life in Honolulu and never see an Ohia tree, or at least never see it other than 70 miles an hour on the highway going across the island. So um, emphasizing the value of it is something else we want to do.
0: Yeah, and I, another interesting point to bring up is that, you know, Hawaii is a tourist destination. You know, it, It's also important, too, that uh, others outside of the communities understand this as well, because you can have all the most well-intentioned people living there, uh, and it could just be, you know, a handful of careless tourists that come through and four-wheel in the wrong spot or do something stupid. Yeah,
1: one of the things that we're trying to do, and this, this I think, is good for all invasive species, is boot-cleaning stations at the trailhead. So on this island... There are boot cleaning stations now installed on all the trailheads. And they're starting on some of the others because, again, it's really easy to move. Not, you know, and so the boot cleaning station is possibly with this, but weed seeds and all kinds of other things that, you know, you can move. Especially, this is what I'm thinking of, the tourist, the adventure tourist. I mean, the tourist who sits on the beach with a blue drink, that's fine. They're not going to be involved with this. But the adventure tourist who goes and hikes in a forest with a disease and then goes hikes in another forest with it. Boot cleaning stations, an informational signs saying, "Hey, scrub your boots here before you hike this trail, so you don't bring in all these things, especially the Via Death.
0: I really like the idea of boot cleaning stations. I think more parks would, or any public area where there's hiking, would do well to implement that strategy. Just you know, just for even invasive seeds, but even less obvious things like disease.
1: Diseases, yeah. I mean, disease is more subtle. Seeds, you you see because you see, hey, look along the trail, we've got this weed popping up now since we opened this trail. Hmm, okay.
0: Yeah. So is there any hope uh, of maybe some sort of host resistance? Are you seeing any signs that certain trees are handling the disease a little bit better than others? Or is it kind of they're all novel to it and they're all hurting from it?
1: Sure. Um, even in the worst infected stands, there are some trees that aren't dead. But, of course, we don't know if they're resistant or if they're just um, lucky so far and didn't get it. Maybe they never had a wound. Um, so the way you have to find out about that is bring those into culture and inoculate them and see, okay, you know, if you inoculate it, Does it um, successfully fight off the disease or does it die just like everything else? We've just got one master's student so far finishing up, um, looking at just four varieties. And he's finding some differences among the varieties. so a little bit of hope there. Ohia is very different. In fact, it's a really interesting evolutionary story. Um, What we see in our dominant species here, Metrocitoris polymorpha, is many varieties. So the geneticist calls it incipient speciation. So, you see a lot of variability. There are five named botanical varieties on this island. Uh, statewide, there are eight named botanical varieties and four other rarer species on this island. So, there's a lot of diversity. Um, once the molecular biologists get at it, they're discovering there's a lot more diversity that even the botanists don't know because it's not all obvious just by the leaf and the flowers. Um, so, we really hope that there's going to be some variability in the resistant to disease and all the diversity. and that may be partly why um, we see it worse in some areas than others. I mean, some areas are dominated by one variety and some areas are dominated by the other. Um, it may just be high altitude is an unfriendly habitat for the fungus, but it may be that the high altitude varieties are also resistant to it. So we're gearing up um, for doing more work on this, and it's, you know it's a process of getting the funding to get the scientists to lead that effort and get the planting material and all that because it's got to be uh, inoculate things in the greenhouse and, you know, see what gets the disease and then dissect them and see if the fungus is there and all that stuff.
0: Hmm. It sounds to me like one of the common themes in, in your work and the work that everyone is trying to do on this, this particular issue is that uh, the research needs to be done. You need more people on the ground. You need uh, funding for investigations. I mean, is that stand? Is that you really can't make positive headway without... People caring and giving funding and and doing the kind of work that uh, elucidates some of these these questions, these unknowns.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a certain amount of stuff that we can just um, extrapolate from Ceratocystis diseases and other places, but really, there's a lot of things that our diseases are going to behave differently. So, uh, and at the same time, we don't want to sit on our hands with outreach until the all the research questions are are answered. You know, so we're really putting out the best practices that we know now and being um, ready to revise them as more results come in. I mean, you know, we were already trying to stop people from spreading around before we even discovered there were two species. And then just this year, we've discovered the two species actually cause two different diseases. You know, one causes a wilt, one causes a canker. And so that, that explains a lot of what we see in the field. So we've been moving ahead with trying to stop it at the same time that we're doing research on, well, what is the most important thing? And then that that means, you know, feeding back between the research and the outreach uh, programs into, okay, here's our best assessment of management now and we'll meet again next month when you guys get some more results and, and try to figure out, okay, well, now we wanna emphasize this or no, it looks like we're on the right path.
0: So ongoing, uh, needless to say, but i am glad not, to see. Like,
1: yeah, we I mean, definitely need to scramble for funding. So we we hired two postdocs full time on this. I mean, there are three of us leading up this effort who all had full time jobs before we started leading this effort, and then you know this really exploded. Um, so getting postdocs who are you know focused on this. I'm sorry. So we have three postdocs on, and then staff and technicians, but then other people from other agencies. So the state forestry agency, the national park, have been devoting a lot of their staff time to on-the-ground management of this sort of stuff and then a lot of groups have been working together also on the outreach I mean Nature Conservancy has sent staff in to okay meet with us and how can we help with the outreach on it In yeah. um, different different working groups on all the other islands So people in the conservation community people that are, that are the LinkedIn and know the the native plants and conservation everyone in the state knows about this um, People who don't deal with the forest and, and, and don't th- those things about that know, well, no, they don't. So um, we still have a lot of work to do. And I think there are a lot of other communities that we still need to work out on getting the word out so everybody knows about it. Yeah. But at least as far as the the professionals who do forestry and conservation, everybody here now is aware of that. yeah
0: Well, yeah. I think it's an important point to make that you know, with issues similar to this, and especially rapid Ohia death and an island like, uh, you know, the Big Island, it's not just an issue that affects people that are interested in botany or just interest in conservation in general. I mean, this is something with multiple different stakeholders and a lot of a lot of issues to face. You know, this isn't something that can just be ignored. And, uh, you know, I think a good, solid outreach program is the foundation of making that, uh, you know, a possibility.
1: Yeah, one of the, one of the things that... Those of us who don't live in Honolulu feel like Honolulu people tend to be very Oahu centric. So uh, invasive species issues that hit the other islands uh, don't get the attention they deserve until it hits Oahu. Um, if then the um, one of the things that I've been trying to get is one of our ecological economists to look at economic costs of it because again when you're talking about trying to get funders and legislators to look at things, you have to look at funding things. What I suspect is the biggest cost is the loss in property values. So, I mean, I mentioned there are tens of thousands of people on this island living in Ohia forests. And what's the value of one of these properties in a forest versus in a stand of dead trees? Um, And, and, you know, so that's going to be tens of thousands of dollars multiplied by tens of thousands of people. That's, you know, millions of dollars of of property loss damage there. The next biggest value for our forest is watershed protection. I mean, we're on a small set of islands. We don't go tap a river somewhere else. It's What lands on the island is our water. Um, When the forests die, that really changes the hydrology. So what's going on with that? What do we stand to lose? Um, This, uh, on the other side of the island, the west side of the island, which tends to be drier, they've been on water restrictions all year because um, a couple of the wells broke down and the remaining wells can't pump enough water. Yeah. So everybody in North Kona was told to cut their water use by 25% um, or the wells start pumping up salt water. So, you know, we're that close to not having enough fresh water to go around. Wow. So protect the watershed. And then these forests are the habitat for all the endangered species. I mean, Hawaii is endangered species capital of the U.S. I mean, I was just reviewing some birds and it's, Something like three quarters of the forest birds that used to be here are gone now, and half of the remaining ones are endangered. These birds live in the ohia forest, so when the forest dies, all the bird conservation is is moot at that point. You know, so one of the things I'm really trying to get out is it's not just one more thing. You know, here's a pest on the fig, and here's a pest on the holly, here's a pest on this forest. Everything else depends on it. When this forest goes. The rare plants are gone. That you know, all these other things are going to be gone if, if we lose the forest the way we have lost in some areas. And, and I hope it doesn't extend up the mountain into the really pristine areas. But you know, that's what's at stake is all the conservation for all the other things that inhabit it.
0: Yeah, that's the point I try to drive home all the time: is if you don't start caring about plant conservation, especially the dominant plant species in these communities, you're going to lose every other charismatic species you care about. It's got to be holistic. It can't be picking favorites at this point. Right. Yeah. So let's make this a hope sandwich. You know, you started off with having a little hints of hope at this latest conference. Um, you know, let's reiterate that. I, is this a picture that I think with uh, enough attention and enough effort, uh, is is there hope? Are you a hopeful person? So
1: the, the three things that, that I um, ended up my introductory talk at this conference were... Um, The one is that um, the disease seems to be episodic, and it seems to be 2014, 15, 16, we went through a particularly bad episode, uh, and maybe a bunch of things came together. Maybe the hurricane and the fungus and a bunch of things came together, so we saw a really bad episode. Um, And you know, We only have three years of on-the-ground data now to see how this is going, but I'm thinking there are some episodes that we've seen a bad episode, and it may be calming down some after that. The second is that um, this business of the disease, the fungus is able to exist in many environments, but in some environments, it's not causing so much disease as some others. So where it started out was the best place for the fungus to go, and it was just an absolute disaster in those tens of thousands of acres of forest. But where it exists in some other forests, some at least we've seen some high elevation, some dry forest, it's there, uh, but it's not, it's at a manageable level, it's, you know, we'll take management on it, but we'll be able to manage it so it is uh, a management problem rather than a a disaster. And then the third is that, you know, I'm hoping that in this enormous diversity in this one species of trees, there gonna be some other, um, some significant resistance to it. We're not going to be replanting significant areas of forest. I mean, it's just, uh, we replant hundreds of acres of forest a year in the state, and we are affecting tens of thousands of acres a year with this. It's just orders of magnitude more than we can do by replanting. But if there is resistance in a forest that coupled with management, that coupled with keeping the other invasive species out, we could um, keep the forest as a native forest. So I think those three things are reasons that, you know, I'm still hopeful and working on that we can manage this. Um, and we're not gonna get rid of it, the problem will always be here, it'll always be part of how we manage our forests here, but the, the possibility that um, we've seen a bad episode, but in the future it's not gonna be so bad, the possibility that the f- disease won't be so bad in different environments, um, and the possibility that there will be resistance in the, in the, the native population of Ohia, I think are three reasons that we can be hopeful that we'll be able to manage this.
0: But, again, attention and effort are needed, and that's really where this kind of hope yeah. can breed true. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, if people want to get to know more about this issue and, you know, potentially learn how they can help out, where do you recommend they start looking?
1: Uh, we have a website, rapidohiodeath.org, and uh, that's where we kind of centralized all the information on it. Um, and that will have also links to articles and videos and other stuff on it about what's going on with it.
0: Excellent. I'll post a link to that with this uh, this episode. Great. Wonderful. Well, Doctor Friday, I really appreciate you taking the time. I'm sorry it's under such uh, saddening circumstances, but yeah. with people such as yourself on the ground, you know, it, it does give hope, and it's nice to know that uh, there's a good team of concerned citizens and community willing to put in the effort to do something about it.
1: Yeah, this has been a, a pretty much a unifying um, thing. Nobody likes the fungus. There's nobody out there saying, save the fungus. The heck with the trees. Uh, a lot of our invasive species issues, there are two sides and then arguments in the community. This isn't like that. Everybody is on the same side. Everybody wants to save the ohia trees. Um, so in that way, it has been a positive. It, it, there's you know We're not arguing with each other about what to do. We're or, or like, hey, what can we do? What can we do to protect the trees? Everybody's on the same side for that. So community-wise, it, it, I mean it's a sad thing that's happening, but it's positive. Everybody's trying to pull together on the same side.
0: Yeah. That, that so-called boomerang effect I'm hearing a lot about these days. I, I don't get the metaphor. Something terribly negative happens, but it comes around to a bunch of people unifying to fight against it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Politically big time, but
1: yeah. Yeah. Well, this, this it's, um, it's coming around that, you know, and, and we've had a lot of, uh, bloody battles about invasive species that some people like them, and then there's a fight in the community about, do we get rid of these or do we not? But this, nobody likes the fungus, so it's it's good for that. <laughs> right.
0: Well, excellent. Uh, again, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate hearing about this, Great. and uh, right. I think more people need to hear about it, so All okay. Right. take care. A on. All right. I think we built a little bit of a hope sandwich there. Hope that wasn't too much of a downer for you guys, but again, it's something worth knowing about, it's something worth understanding, and at the very least, it is inspirational to see so many stakeholders getting involved to fight to save not only just this species, but the entire ecosystem that depends on these trees. We are not alone. Hawaii might be the poster child for invasive species and invasive pathogens, but these sorts of things can and have happened across the globe. You know, Think of our chestnuts, think of our ash. This isn't an issue that just affects... A handful of people that care about trees it affects everyone because you know we kind of rely on the ecosystem so i thank dr friday for taking time out of what is a very busy and intense schedule to sit down and talk to us and teach us a bit about this uh terrible disease all right everyone this is enough for me this week again if you've got aching botanical or ecological questions please email them to me plants at gmail.com we are going to do another question show i don't know when it's going to come out but uh, i'll do it as soon as i get enough questions And I'll work as hard to give you as satisfactory of an answer as I possibly can. And if I don't know the answer, I'll make up something that sounds good. I don't know. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening. This is Matt signing out. Adios.